I'm Jackie Rodriguez, and this is Friends with Friends, a podcast where we explore all 236 episodes of the TV show Friends, one at a time. And we got a very special episode today. Um, we have one of the writers, Adam. But first, let's introduce you to some of my friends. Vanessa. I'm Vanessa Martinez, and I'm the newest member of the Friends community. I have never watched an episode in my life until now, and I feel wow. ready to conquer the Friends life. <laughs> and I'm Jason Ball. I'm the old guy in the room. I am uh, the same age as all the Friends, so I remember when it happened, uh, 90s guy, so uh, remember all, uh, I'm just like them, so it's very nostalgic for me to go back down this road, So and it's fun to watch it with my uh, Latina millennials. Yay! <laughs> and we have Adam Chase, who was part of Friends for seasons one through six. He was a writer, producer. Did you take on all the roles, like you, um, story producer, writing? What was your main role there? Uh, I was uh, one of the original writers. I, I was the longest lasting original writer. So I was hired oh. right after the pilot. So I was there from episode one till episode 150, approximately. That is amazing. Six what? years. Yeah. Six years. And we spoke with um, your writing partner, Ira, that's in previous podcasts. So mm -hmm. um, did you get started the same way he did on Phenom? Yes. Uh, Ira and I went to college together mm -hmm. and we started our careers as writing partners. And our first job was this show called Phenom, which was on ABC for one season in 1993. Because Friends started in 94. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it got canceled after the first season. And we were utterly heartbroken. Just <laughs> as a quick kind of funny TV trivia aside, that show was canceled with 17 million average viewers a week. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Why has the world has changed? Why yeah. has the world has changed? Exactly. Um, and this is the 90s, not the 70s. Uh, so yeah. So that was not a hit with 17 million average viewers a week. Anyway, it got canceled and we were absolutely heartbroken because it was our first job and there were all these amazing writers on it, original Simpsons writers, writers from SCTV, the Saturday Night Live equivalent in Canada. We just couldn't have been more excited. It was such a nice group and it was working for James L. Brooks, uh, Taxi, Mary Tyler Moore, Broadcast News, Jerry Maguire. So it was really just an exciting place to be and we were heartbroken when it got canceled. Um, and then we got about three or four job offers uh, after that because we were a team. So you paid us as one person and we were like the lowest level you could be. We were staff writers. <laughs> so we got a lot of job offers and we came really close to taking the Martin Short show because Martin Short is a legend and hilarious. And we had met him through our boss at Phenom, who was an SCTV writer. And we were like, it's a no brainer. Let's go write for Martin Short. He's a genius. That'll be amazing. <laughs> Uh, and right before we took that job, we had a meeting on this pilot called Friends. And we were like, well, these people are exactly the same age as we are. And they're essentially living our lives. Because at that time, we were still five people in a three-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. So we said, ah, what the hell? Let, let's just take this one. And all <laughs> the other shows were canceled within 15 minutes. And Friends became this crazy rocket ship. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that's really interesting to see how... You know, it's a great story of perseverance too. I mean, Hollywood is all about rejection and Los Angeles, you know, the first, just because you lose a job or a show gets canceled does not mean don't try, try again, keep going. And I'm sure that the 
things you learned from the show and the people that you met from the show. And those just led to those other three job offers, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, our one boss was going to run the show with Martin Short. So that seemed comfortable and exciting. Um, and then, you know, because we had had a job, uh, w we were able to meet some people who wouldn't have taken a meeting with us the year prior. And that's why one of the jobs was the Dudley Moore show, you know, which also unfortunately <laughs> I don't got think canceled. they know who that is. Yeah, you guys right. know who that is? <laughs> Heard of him. Okay. Okay. Never seen <laughs> famous British, famous British comedian yeah. was a big star in the seventies, did a lot of seventies <laughs> and eighties, did a lot yeah. of movies but just a genius guy. But anyway, he did like a family sitcom and it lasted for six episodes, but you know, we got all these interesting meetings and it really was just this sort of strange little instinct that it was like, that's kind of the way we live. Like maybe we should take that job if they offer it. And also David Schwimmer was in it who I went to college with. Oh, there you go. Were you friends with David Schwimmer or just an acquaintance? No, we were friendly. Uh, he's two years older than me, so we weren't in the same classes and stuff. But um, no, we were absolutely friendly because we were both theater majors. Um, but he helped me not be an actor because I <laughs> started out as a theater major. And um, when I got to Northwestern, uh, the theater program was so good that we had people like David Schwimmer and Anna Gunn, who... You, you know, it was Brian Cranston's wife on Breaking Bad. And, and there were a lot of people like that. And I was like, um, I'm not as good as these people. <laughs> but I felt like I was in the right building. So it was actually yeah. kind of a blessing for me to be with people that talented because I, I loved acting and I continued to act. But I started to put more of um, a focus on writing and directing while I was in school, which was great. So I didn't come out to L.A. and waste a couple of years trying to be an actor. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Then you married an actor, right? Uh, I, I married a, a writer and actress, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only one talent per relationship. I've heard people say it's always best anyway. <laughs> that's awesome. And you mentioned, you know, Jackie mentioned that you, you know, worked with Ira on some of the episodes. How was that collaboration process like? Well, on... Friends was insanely collaborative. Um, in, an, in a half hour comedy, uh, most of the work is done in the writer's room, um, but on Friends even more so, because although we would, we would break the stories together and then an individual or a team would go off and write a draft, and very early on, you would actually get notes from Marta and David and be able to do a second draft. That quickly disappeared when our sort of buffer of time disappeared and, and you just start to get behind and you'd only get to write one draft. So before it came back to the room and was rewritten multiple times and Friends really was about rewriting. We would stay, I'm sure Ira told you this, but we would normally work 12, 14, 16 hour days. It was insane. And that was because we were just constantly trying to make it better. Can this be funnier? Is there a surprising story turn? what can we do to make this, what can we do to find a plot twist that's unexpected that um, subverts your expectations? If one person, it's the only place I've worked where if one person in the room said, is this joke kind of familiar? Everybody would go, okay. And we'd just sit there for two hours on like the off story downbeat, which is, you know, the, like a joke at the top of the scene that doesn't have to do with the story, which we used to do on yeah. Friends a lot. And we would spend an hour, two hours just on one joke. And I think that's why part of the reason 
why people still love it so much because we worked so hard and cared so much. And it shows too. And that's what we've talked to Marlo Thomas, Lauren, Tom, we've talked to other people who have been part of it and they all contribute to the writing of it. So that's why we're so interested to get the perspectives from you guys as well. So um, you mentioned that the, there's jokes in there that have nothing to do with story. Uh, we saw a lot of that, like before the credits, you know, I loved all of those before the credits. So those, those scenes would take two hours. Those jokes would take two hours to produce. One one joke could take two hours. It's, oh it's crazy God. to say now, but we were all, you know, we were all like 23, 24 years old. Yeah. And our, our bosses were like 35. So and we had boundless energy. And even before it premiered, we felt like it was special. We had no idea about the popularity, of course, but we mm -hmm. felt like, Oh, this is really good. This feels really good. And if something feels really good, you just want to make it better. And then you could make it better and the actors would find things and we would find things and we would just make it better and better and better during the week. And sometimes we would stop in the middle of a filming uh, between takes and we would rewrite an entire scene, which is virtually unheard of. Changing mm -hmm. a joke here, a joke there or something, that's pretty normal. But on that show, we, I think because Martin and David have said, because they didn't really know better, they didn't know <laughs> that it was weird to keep the audience waiting for 40 minutes. <laughs> Ultimately, of course, the audience loved it because they got to see our first draft. Then they got to see us huddle. You know, what are they doing? What are they doing? And then they would mm -hmm. see a whole new scene and it was kind of a treat. That's, That's awesome. really cool. Yeah. So, well, you know, when you you spoke about it a little bit, when you first started, you were in this bubble of creating this show and you're several episodes in before it even premieres and then it hits. And then did you, did the focus alter or change after that, depending on the audience respond to it? And then even in the second and third, all of the seasons, you're, you're so far ahead how do you react to the audience's reaction to things and, and the storylines and, and, and their reaction? Well, it was initially well-received, but it didn't become a hit until the summer after the first season when they started to air our repeats. The show mm -hmm. aired at 8.30. Mm -hmm. And then they aired our repeats over the summer back when networks aired EP repeats fairly often. They aired our repeats over the summer at 9.30 after Seinfeld repeats. And we started to beat the Seinfeld repeats. And then I remember coming home from visiting my parents and I was coming home from the airport and every single magazine cover had a picture of either the friends or one of the friends. <laughs> oh and my, my first God. thought was, I swear to God, cause I was so young and naive. I just thought somebody at these magazines is gonna get in trouble. They all have the same thing on. <laughs> and then I realized, oh no, no, no. It's, it's just a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and then the way, the first way it affected us was our laugh spread got crazy. And laugh spread is the amount of time that's added to a show um, from the a live audience's laughter. So you lose script time, you lose pages of a script. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of a good and a bad because if you have a huge, huge, huge laugh spread, you have to lose material. So we would actually have to cut our laughs down at editorial because they would go on for 30, 45 seconds a minute. Oh my and God. Um, the audience would start to laugh at the setups. 
because they knew the character so well, if someone sort of lobbed something and the camera cut to Chandler, they would laugh before he spoke, which was really fun <laughs> when you were standing there, but it's weird when you're watching it at home. So there had to be, you had to edit that stuff out because it was strange. It would have been strange at home to have an audience laugh on a setup. Before the joke. Yeah, right, before the joke. So it it didn't affect us creatively, except I think that we thought, oh, now everybody's watching us. So we got to make sure that we, that we always do better, that we always do better. And that was, that was the sort of mantra from Marta and David, no matter how good the table read was, no matter how good the run through was, always the first question was, how can we do better when we sat down after a run through or, or a table read? Well, I think that's the key to success is never sit back or, or be afraid, never be afraid to just because the audience likes this doesn't mean you don't need to evolve the show and keep growing it. And I think a lot of shows suffer from that. Like this works. We're just going to keep doing this and we're not going to change anything. And then it gets older, tiresome. And you know, then they get, you know, that's how you lose, a, lose an audience. Totally. I mean, Ross and Rachel is a perfect example. Yeah. They were the emotional engine of the show for the first few years. And then we switched it because it was always supposed to be kind of a Rubik's cube of comedy where, you know, different people come to the forefront and maybe Phoebe uh, and Monica and Chandler were the lighter, um, more uh, pure comedy stories. Mm -hmm. And Ross and Rachel was where a lot of the emotion came from, but then switching it is what I think made the show unique. And, you know, like the Monica Chandler thing we argued about for years. Oh, when, that's what I'm saying. Like, when did that come into play? Like, because how long did that happen? Like, discussions? Um, we, once we had sort of played through multiple iterations of the Ross and Rachel thing, and we had, yeah. we had done the, on a break, and, and we had sort of taken them on a journey, and we realized that what an audience wants is not, they don't really want them to be together. They want to want them to be together. Ah. You like rooting for them. Yes. Once they're together, sure. it's much less interesting. So <laughs> that's why you keep throwing like romantic impediments in their way. Um, but somebody, I don't remember who pitched the Monica Chandler idea because as the character started to develop, we just noticed there was a lot of overlap there in their sort of high energy, anxious, a little bit anal in different ways. Um, you know, they kind of vibrated on the same frequency for lack of a better term. Um, and, and we, you know, the big conversation was, are we just copping out and putting two people together who we know the audience will sort of cheer and flip out, but what do we really get from it story-wise? And when somebody pitched, they're afraid it's going to blow up. So they keep it secret for like a year. We were like, that's it. That's worth doing. <laughs> um, and then, and, and we also had the piece where they get revealed during the second part of the two-part London episode when Ross is getting married. Um, actually, it might be the first part. But anyway, in the London episode where she pops out of his bed and you reveal mm -hmm. that they've been having an affair that nobody knows about, including the audience, th 
the cheer that erupted in the, uh, <laughs> the London audience was deafening and went on for somebody timed it. It was like a two minute reaction. It was <gasps> oh my God. Um, and so, uh, but that was the thing. We didn't do it until we had a fantastic reveal where you never would have expected mm -hmm. it during the wedding, but you get it because people do crazy stuff around, around weddings. Yeah. Probably everyone has experience with that. Um, <laughs> And then we had that they want to keep it secret. And we knew that that was going to give us so much. How many times did you attempt to reveal the Monica and Chandler story to the audience, but decided to hold off? Um, we, I remember we gave, once we sort of committed to it, we put in little teeny tiny hints, um, moments okay. of softness between them. But we always knew we wanted to reveal it at Ross's wedding because it felt like an end of season big giant cliffhanger surprise. And it also felt like emotionally, they're in another country, somebody else is getting married, mm -hmm. they don't have anyone. It, it, you know, we really, even though it was a sitcom, we thought about all of that stuff. And it was like, when would it really happen? Would it happen in New York when everybody's around and it's not in a heightened emotional state? Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would. And so all those things, like it feels like an end of season where's the most kind of delicious reveal? And it was like, has to be when all the focus is on Ross. That's hilarious. Yeah. Like, no one's going to expect that. That's funny. It's interesting watching it retrospectively now and watching it knowing that they're going to end up. I feel like there are hints even early on in the season. Like there was a, a scene where uh, uh, Monica puts her hand on, uh, on Chandler's shoulder. I'm like, did they know then that they were going to do it <laughs> or, or is it just that the characters and maybe even just the, the chemistry between the, the two actors is really beginning to show. Yes, absolutely. You're right. That is the piece I left out. There was absolutely <laughs> chemistry between them. There was absolutely <laughs> chemistry between them and oh, we saw it. Yes. And I remember years before we did it, people started to say like, there's, there's chemistry between them. And, it's not just the people because they all did love each other in real life, but it was like, I get how those characters who are usually the most worried about something, like I understand why they would kind of comfort one another. And so they instinctually did that because they were always working so hard. I remember we had, um, this is a quick aside, but it applies to what you said. So we had Michael Rappaport on the show one time and he played Phoebe's yeah. boyfriend who was a cop mm -hmm. and he's a super talented actor. And you know, I think he, he tells this story. He he came in and he thought, you know, he'd do his thing and it wasn't going to be too hard and it was cool. He'd be on this show. And then he saw the actors, our actors, in their free time, running their lines and working their scenes on their own to make it better and find funnier choices. And he just, and he tells the story of thinking, okay, I better up my game because like <laughs> these people are not messing around. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that they were always thinking about stuff and making it realer and finding little details. So I think that's where you started to feel that connection organically. And then we noticed it and then we started talking about it. And like I said, we had, we had screaming arguments, no kidding, about <laughs> Chandler and Monica for years. Not, not like at each other, like mm -hmm. you're in, you know, swearing at each other, but like we did have, we were so <laughs> passionate about like, we're just selling out the show. That's a BS move. It's a yeah. cheap move. Or like, no, here's why it's great. You're crazy. Uh -huh. You can get so many stories out of it. And it wasn't until 
everybody was convinced that we did it. So it was democracy in action in that way. <laughs> <laughs> and TV is never dem democratic in that aspect. Usually it's yeah. one person who goes, no, this is what we're doing, right? Or <laughs> Yeah, well, that was great. That's what's great about David and Marta. They, they were willing to let us argue for hours until we got consensus, which was really hard. And, you know, I obviously had to be willing to stay up till two, three, four in the morning. Um, sometimes I would drive to work listening to some morning radio show and I would drive home from work listening to the same morning radio show. So <laughs> they really let us argue a lot. Uh -huh. um, yeah, but that's that's what got us there. And going back to really quickly, your um, Chandler and Monica love story. At what point did uh, Matthew Perry and Courtney Cox find out that they were going to be together? <laughs> um, I think we wanted to, you know, we really wanted to keep it a secret. They knew before. For, they knew before they went to London, Marta and David told them, but we kept the script. We tried to keep the script really under wraps. I think what we did was we gave everybody the script without that last half page where she pops out because otherwise we knew it was going to spill at that point. And did, did, and did the other actors find out even later or? I'm sure I'm trying to think back. I would imagine they weren't explicitly told as I remember, but I'm sure, uh, I, I'm sure Courtney and Matt probably told them. I'm sure they knew. <laughs> I'm sure they knew. Yeah, of course they knew. So you talk about the way that they worked so hard and were so professional on it. And even Marlo Thomas, when we interviewed her about the show, she, she you know, who was, you know, a, a legend. You know, was, yeah. A legend. Uh, and and move, it comes in and she was a little intimidated with the way they all worked together and how close they worked together. And then they just brought her in like she was part of it, but she, she did mention that, you know, that the, it was a, like a higher level of intensity than even what she was used to working on. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example. She's, she's a legend. She, uh, she's has perfect comic timing. She's starred in multiple shows and people would get though this feeling when they got there of like, Oh, I better up my game because people are not messing around. Um, because everyone worked so hard because we all realized, oh, this is working on a level that most TV shows just don't work on. Like we knew it was, we knew it was special from the beginning, just from a creative point of view. But um, you know, very quickly into it, we we realized it was special because it was special. So I think we all felt this responsibility. Um, to make it as good as possible. And when people came in, there was often that moment of like, oh, I better work a little hard. I'm not gonna be able to sleepwalk through this. Um, <laughs> not that of course, Marlo Thomas was gonna do that, but mm -hmm. everybody, everybody knew, everybody realized they had to up their game to play with those guys because they worked so ridiculously hard. Okay. So how did that come about? I feel like, you know, the parents, the parental figures in the show are very interesting and uniquely cast and, you know, how, and I feel like that's part of the genius of the show too, since it was about 20 somethings that their parents are still important in their lives, but you know, they kind of come and go, but Cassie Marlowe Thomas and Morgan Fairchild and, and Elliot Gould as the parents, how did, you know, how were, were there discussions about that or were they just, you guys found out, Oh, this is who's going to be these people and, you know, make it work from there. I think Marta and David, Marta and David, again, were part of their genius was that they were not, 
they didn't have to have all the ideas come from them. Uh-huh. They just want their thing was always best idea wins. Uh-huh. Don't care if it comes from me. Don't care if it comes from you. Don't care if it comes from the writer's assistant. Best idea wins. So they came and told us who they were thinking about. And, you know, when we heard Elliot Gould, everyone was like, oh, that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there probably were other cool names floated. But again, Marlo Thomas, it's like, oh, that's perfect. I see her as um, Rachel's mom. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I see it. I see the the inflection, also sort of her sitcom history of having been, mm-hmm. you know, girl on her own in, in New York and in her in her show years ago, like it just felt right. And then Morgan Fairchild is Mrs. Bing. That was I, just, I mean, that yeah, is I mean, comedy yeah, gold. Legend. Yeah, she's just <laughs> right. And again, like you, so he he came from this. He had a really troubled childhood. It was really intense. Yeah. Um, and he's such a he was such a performative character. Like what would sort of birth that guy and it was like oh yeah M- morgan Ch- morgan fairchild <laughs> that's who would like, they can't was, yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. oh totally. my gosh big yeah. big big sort of performative personalities um yeah that would that's where a guy like that would come from a joke and, machine like that and speaking of performative personalities when you guys did the super bowl episode i mean you guys had so many big guest stars coming in when you were on set of that were you just like okay because ira told us like he was like oh julia roberts is on set with us like is that when it kind of hit you in the second season that this was bigger than yourself yeah it was crazy i think you know as i said when i came back from visiting my parents and i saw that every (laughs) single magazine at the magazine stand had a picture of one of the actors on it I knew, um, but then, yeah, where it was like, oh, sure, we can get more, uh, um, sorry, sure, we can get Julie Roberts. She really yeah. wants to do it. Okay. Okay. Um, like, <laughs> really? Uh, like, that seems <laughs> weird, but great. Um, yeah. And I'll never forget, she, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but so Julie Roberts, you know, we heard she really liked the show. We watched the show. We didn't know if that was just being polite or if it was real. <laughs> But sure enough, one day she came to visit us in the writer's room, which she really didn't need to do. She didn't, you know, she could have just gone to the stage and done a good job and everybody would have been thrilled. But she came to the writer's room and she stuck her head and she said, I just want to say hi. And then I'm really excited to be on the show. And then Ira walked in behind her and put his arm through her arm and, and said, uh, hey, everybody, I just want to introduce my new girlfriend, Jules. And she immediately went with it and was like, yeah, we've been together about three months, but it feels serious. And it was amazing. And then that, first of all, that she went with it. And second of all, that Ira had the courage to do that. But, um, no, yeah, but it, it was very respectful. He put her arm through his arm, you know, it was very cute. But she went with it, it was hilarious. And then she said, no, honestly, guys, uh, I just wanted to come up here and tell you how much I love the show. I watch it every week. I love the writing. It's so good. And I can't wait to perform your stuff. And we were like, more jokes for her. <laughs> Whatever. She knew what she was doing. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it felt genuine, but also like, wow, you're a movie star for a reason. That's a really smart move. So, uh-huh. you know, obviously we worked hard on every script, but we did go back and we we're like, let's find more jokes. Find more jokes for her. It is amazing when you see her on screen. When we watch that, I'm like, wow, she just fills it up. Yeah. 
She is definitely yeah, you know, that that thing people say about movie stars and you know specifically her her smile, her famous yeah. smile. You know, you'd go in and pitch her a joke, um, and she'd laugh and just give you that smile and you'd be like, "Wow!" It just feels <laughs> like there's some kind of energy being being pointed at me. What is that? Um, yeah, amazing. I remember when we had Bruce Willis on the show for an arc, which was yes. surreal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, at one point, um, he we we would alternate who would be on the stage for um, camera blocking and pre-shooting, which would be Thursday and Friday before our Friday evening shoots. So it was my turn to be on stage for one of, along with Marta. Marta was always on stage and then she would have one of us with her. And um, I was the person down there with Marta and uh, they were pre-shooting a scene with Bruce and he turned to me between a take and he said, Adam, um, let let me show you two things. Tell me which one's funnier. And as he was doing these two different choices of the same line to me, I was just also outside of my body thinking, (laughs) Bruce Willis is asking me which way to perform this line. Oh my God, (laughs) this is crazy. And I was like, I think the second one's funnier. And he's like, yeah, me too. And you know, it's just one of those moments that I will never ever forget. Did they catch it on tape? Did they catch it on tape? Were they rolling at all? Yeah, I mean, we we perform not the talking not the to me part. Like, oh, yes, like, man. <laughs> somewhere I have a picture of me directing him. I mean, oh, directing man. him is a stretch because it was really me just saying, "Yeah, the second thing yeah. you did was great." Like he <laughs> came up with both choices, but it looks like I am, which is hilarious because oh I am a child. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome story. Yeah. But what's cool is that I remember. Um, they, you guys referenced Die Hard, you know, in, oh, the, yeah. in France, like multiple times. And then you have yes. Bruce Willis. And it seems like it was a lot of that, like Susan Sarandon, you know, was mentioned in the list of people that the hall pass list. Uh, and then she's yep. on later on. So I feel like Friends had that. It's like, oh, you put it out there. It was such a great show that pe- those, those actors actually want to be a part of it. So that was, that's really cool. Like full circle moment for you guys. For sure. Yeah. I want to talk about something really important to the show, and it's called okay. Smelly Cat, written by Adam Chase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is where this came from. Smelly Cat. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, so I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the Smelly yeah. Cat story. Um, yes. So the first time it appeared, it was just in dialogue. It wasn't you didn't hear it sung, mm-hmm. and we just needed a funny song title, and I pitched that title, <laughs> and then. We got to the taping and Lisa was saying, was pronouncing it as smelly cat and she was hitting cat. Mm-hmm. And I went to David between takes in front of 300 people in the studio audience. And I was like, um, David, I just think it'd be funnier if she hits the smelly. So it's smelly cat, not smelly cat. And he's like, do you seriously want me to go in there between takes and tell her that and I was like um and I saw my career flash before my eyes and I was like (laughs) yes and he was like okay and he went in he told her she did it again it got a huge laugh because it was that thing that sometimes happened on the show where they just said things differently than you expected 
And it was just a tiny little change. And like, it's an example of how delicate comedy is like a little change, a little pause, accenting, accenting a different word makes a huge difference. But then of course I will be totally honest and say, David pulled me aside and said, you know what? You were right on that one, but you got to pick your moments. Like, <laughs> you, you, you can't fine tune everything. And I was like, I hear you. I just felt really strongly about that one. And he's like, I'm giving you that one but you got to choose your moments. And I was like, yes. Yeah. So that's something I always had to work on because I like to get in there and kind of tinker. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do think that made a difference. It did make a difference. And everyone says it that way ever since. Um, and then when we subsequently needed the lyrics for it, again, it was like one o'clock in the morning by 12, 12 o'clock by the time we got there. And I remember David saying, smelly cat, smelly cat what are they feeding you and then i think it was jeff astroff who was there in the first two years did smelly cat smelly cat it's not your fault and like that's the first chunk we had and then um i think we added more the next time we we heard it but you know that's a really great example of the room the power of the room like I came up with the title, David came up with some lyrics, Jeff Astroff came up with some lyrics, and later uh, Marta came up with some lyrics, like, and we just kept adding to it. Um, and it, it's that that's sort of like the building blocks. And like the group, when it functions correctly, it work can be so much more productive and, and, and do so much better than just one lone writer. Yeah. It's such an iconic song. I mean, like it's it's it it has become part of Friends, and it is just every. I even sing it to, even to like my niece and nephew, <laughs> like Smelly Girl, Smelly Girl. So I just love how it That's has its legs of its own, and it just it's such a legacy part of that part of the show. That's so amazing. So thank you. <laughs> of course. And this show also, you know, everyone knows it pushed boundaries when it came to shows it talked about sex talked about you know marla thomas marijuana talked about all these different topics where did that come yeah. from did that come from the creators of the show or the young writers like you well it was all of us because you know marta and david really wanted to explore that very specific time in your life when you're in your 20s and you're not a kid anymore, but you're not totally an adult yet. And you don't have your own family and your friends are your family. And we were experiencing it. Like I said, when I started on the show, I was in a three bedroom apartment with five people and a dog. One person lived in the <laughs> dining room, you know, so we <laughs> really lived that life. And in your twenties, you date a lot and you fall in love and you're, you're, um, and you fall in love easily and um, and you fall out of love easily. And <laughs> so they wanted to they they wanted to deal with all that. And so we were just telling stories of what happened to us because we were figuring our lives out and we were dating and mm -hmm. falling in love and falling out of love and getting broken up with and all those things. And we just were like, here, here's what's happening. Um, I do think it's interesting because it's to me it was that we were kind of that first generation to talk about sex across gender lines. And I think friends was the first TV show to really talk about sex across gender lines. And, you know, the, the boys were like getting advice from the girls and the girls were telling the boy, you know, what, what they like and what they don't like and, and sort of thing. And that, that was really, you know, really groundbreaking and, and no one really, it just never happened before. But my favorite sex thing is when Monica and, and Rachel are fighting over the last condom. Cause that was just, 
you know, <laughs> in the nineties, you couldn't even advertise condoms on TV then. <laughs> right. Uh, no, there were a lot of, um, I don't want to say fights, but there were a lot of, I think, spirited arguments with standards and practices kind of mm. more colloquially known as the censor about what you could say and what you couldn't say. And, and we always tried to say things not explicitly. Like we always tried mm. to, um, like the cl more clever sex joke is always the one that's not completely explicit. Um, mm -hmm. So we were always trying to find that. But yeah, we were trying to be real because that's what happens. Sometimes there is only one left in real life. And so we always tried to find those little moments that either you hadn't seen on TV, but had happened to someone. And what so, happened to you that was incorporated in the show? Yes. <laughs> um, well, a couple of things. Um, <laughs> If you remember the episode where uh, Monica pushes and pushes and pushes to babysit uh, Ross's kid, Ben, uh -huh. um, and um, she bangs his head on the, uh, yeah, on, on the, um, the beam. The beam. Yeah, she bangs his head on the beam. That happened to me with Marta's kid. Oh, and no way. Busy. Yeah, yeah. He was like three three or four and he was visiting the office and I was doing that thing they do with kids where you pick them up and you go, wee, you know, and you kind of throw them in the air a foot or two and then you catch them. And I was going, wee, but what I didn't realize as I, every time I did it, he was taking a step back and I was taking a step forward and we were going closer and closer to the metal door jam of Martin David's office. So we kept going closer and closer and I didn't realize. And the last time I did it, I went, wee, and he went right into the metal door jam. And I'll never forget, like, his eyes locked into my eyes. And I was like, what's going to happen? And, you know, he just started crying and ran to mom. And I was like, again, I saw my career flash before my eyes. <laughs> Marta, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize he was taking a step. We were he was taking a step back. I was just taking a step with him. I, I didn't, I didn't, and she was like, don't worry. I drop him all the time. <laughs> and also, that's so true because when we saw that episode where we were talking about it jack and i were like you know we've done it to our nieces and nephews too in some capacity right totally relatable oh and gosh. we and we took my panic because not ha having because i wasn't going to be a parent for many years i didn't understand like kids are going to fall down a lot you're going to bump their heads like that's going to happen all the time yeah. um but my panic because I was I was jittery for like two days. I kept apologizing and apologizing. And still, when I see Sam, her son to this day, who's now, you know, probably I think he's like 30. He's like, ah, it still hurts a little. <laughs> um, so, so it's like that's where uh, the, the Monica trying to cover it up and then the Monica bang. Mm -hmm. came from my panic and if she hadn't been there would I have tried to cover it up and what would you do with that panic that could give you a couple scenes in a story and oh that's how God. we came up with she tries to hide it but he says Monica bang and oh my god and another one is the leather pants oh, unfortunately. oh my god no way yeah. oh my gosh. Wait, now only the first that? part I will say <laughs> I was with a friend at a store and I think yeah. I had just gone through a breakup and uh -huh. so my friend a woman took me out shopping to you know sort of style me to you know hopefully get back out there in the dating scene or whatever and somehow it was that thing where 
my friend was a girl and the, the saleswoman was like, those look great on, she was like, you should try these on. And the saleswoman was like, those look great on you. And they were like $600 leather pants. And these oh, were like $600 in, you know, the late nineties. So uh -huh. it, it, it's expensive now. I then I, I don't even that. know what that would be. It was crazy. So I put them on and they convinced me I look good in them. I never put them on again. Oh my God. <laughs> never once. Cause they're so not my personality. Yes. And I was so angry at myself for having spent so much money. But then when we were breaking, we we're trying to break in like a new year's episode mm -hmm. and we came up with the idea of the resolutions and the, the, I think I pitched the idea of everybody does something unlike themselves. So like, how about if Ross, and then somebody else said, how about if Ross buys leather pants? And I was like, oh my God. yeah. <laughs> um, and then of course we came up with the, they get stuck on him. Yeah, the, the powder, the powder yeah. None of that happened to me, but as m a shocking amount of stuff on the show at least started with something that truly happened to us. Cause mm. those always work better for some reason. Mm. If there's some sort of, grain of truth like the kind of nerdy guy who's like hey maybe i can be the leather pants guy and guess what you can't <laughs> i have to admit i back in the 90s i tried on a pair of leather pants and, and i was serious to get them and i did not buy them though so oh my gosh <laughs> you're a stronger man than i <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I don't think this is looks good. I don't think this is me. <laughs> I just remember I kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure? And both women were like, yes, yes. And, you know, guys in their 20s tend to just do whatever women say. And so I did. <laughs> yeah. But I do think you're right. When you, the, the greatest, you start with a kernel of truth and then almost, is it, you're almost working it to the absurd for, for comedy. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, this is what happened. This is what I felt. Okay. W what can give us more story beats? Um, and it's, it's not necessarily what's the most absurd thing, but it's often like, what's the most surprising thing? Like, where could this go that I've never seen before? Mm -hmm. um, and another, a, another example of that is if you remember the episode with so we had the recurring building manager guy, Mr. Trieger. Mm -hmm. And he was basically like a blustery guy who we used as kind of a paper tiger sometimes in Monica and Rachel and Joey Chandler's building. But everybody always brought up the question of how do they afford that apartment? So we wanted to cover that by saying it was Monica's grandmother and it was a rent controlled apartment and because it had gone family to family. That's how she was able to afford it. Yeah. Um, and we brought it up when Trigger found uh, Rachel stuffing too much garbage down the garbage chute. Um, and he kind of raises his voice to her. And then Joey goes down to sort of defend them. And he makes the situation worse because he says, uh, I'm going to throw them out because it's not her grandmother anymore. And the original yeah. version of the story was he goes, no, 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 please, 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 please don't do that. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And he goes, okay then you start helping me around the building. And Joey has to essentially work for him for a while. And that was fine. And we had funny beats and it was fine. But somebody in the room, I think it was Andrew Reich, that I just don't feel like the second act lives up to the first act. The first act of like the surprise of, um, because of trying to shove too much garbage down, he, 
Trigger yells, LeBlanc out of loyalty goes and faces them down, but then is going to get them evicted. That's fun. And you don't see that coming. And then he has to work for him. It seems kind of familiar. Mm -hmm. And we kept pitching on what could Trigger ask him that would be completely and totally surprising and delightful. And when somebody pitched, I want you to dance with me. It was like, (laughs) oh, okay. And, you know, we found out Trigger wanted to go to this uh, ballroom dancing. It was like a party of building managers. I don't even remember the exact setup, but there was like a woman. He wanted to learn how to ballroom dance. And so he and Joey learn how to dance. And the episode ends with this kind of beautifully choreographed dance on top of the rooftop that was kind of romantic. And it was so sweet because he helped this kind of galumphing guy with his problem. And um, that's to me is the perfect example of why the show still resonates and people still enjoy it. Because we had a totally, totally good, funny, shootable story that would have been fine. And somebody said, stop, I think it could be better. And we found this totally hilarious, unexpected thing that made it so much better. That's so amazing. And so with um, the Monica and Richard relationship too, was there somebody that was dating somebody 20 years older? Or why did you guys choose to pair her up with somebody that old? And one of her parents' friends. Yeah. That is such a good question. Um, I think... I don't remember how that started. It wasn't that someone was dating someone much older. I think someone mm-hmm. asked the question, you know, cause we did so many dating stories mm-hmm. very quickly. We got to the question of what's the new dating story. What feels new? Cause we've got mm-hmm. Ross and Rachel as an on again, off again relationship. Mm-hmm. We've had Janice who's so particular. We had Janice. the dirty girl for Ross. We, <laughs> you know, we had so many iterations of that date of the week, whether it was the, the guy for one of the girls or the girls, mm-hmm. uh, a girl for a girl for one of the guys or a guy for one of the girls. Um, what's new? What's different? It's like, what if it's someone much older? What if somebody dates someone much older? Who would do that? Well, it feels like Monica's the most grown up. And mm-hmm. also she might struggle with it the most. And then, you know, you always want to connect it somehow to show history and because we knew her parents and her parents were so much a part of the show Mm -hmm. it felt kind of more delicious to have it be someone who was in her orbit not just an older cool guy she meets at a bar because what are the stakes of that but like when it's a guy who you know maybe drove you home from the park when you were a kid like that's weirder (laughs) peed in the pool (laughs) yeah exactly and it it was justifiable because their age it wasn't inappropriate but it also was weird but like in a delightful way and like to see her struggle with it and to see tom Selleck, mr super cool guy struggle with it and he was very sensitive to whether you know it was appropriate and he wanted to make sure his his guy um you know thought about it and considered it very carefully and so did we and and we wanted to do that both ways with monica and with him that they weren't just like oh it's no big deal let's just date like they both struggled with it and that was the fun um and then you got just so many jokes out of um yeah didn't you know he saw you do he saw he knew knew him when you were eight yeah. Well, even Rachel talking about this, she kissed him once when he was, you know, she was a little, you know, or he kissed right. her, you know, uh, back on the cheek or whatever it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that adds to it. And, and he, but 
Tom Selleck to me would not be the first person you would cast in a sitcom. No, no, it's such an interesting, <laughs> Maybe that's the genius such an interesting choice. It was such an, but you know, a lot of that, honestly, Jason is you get these amazing lists of people and you're like, Ooh, this person, that person, this person. And then you find out well, that person is doing a movie. That person doesn't want to do TV. Um, that person's already doing TV. And then, you know, obviously Tom Selleck is at the very top of that list. So we're lucky, but it also could have been, and I don't remember who was on the list. It could have been someone else. There were a lot of great choices, but we knew, we knew we wanted someone with gravitas. Mm-hmm. Um, when they walked in, you would go, that's, that's a man, you know, yeah. that, cause our guys were still kids in mm-hmm. some yeah. ways. So we didn't just want someone who was the age. We wanted someone who really seemed like the patriarch of a family yeah. or something. And you really get that with him, which is, it just adds to the comedy. Cause before he even opens his mouth, you're laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Phoebe's words, James, it's James Bond. And he walks in with a suit, you know, right. it's just like, that's right. exactly, that embodies it. Totally oh, true. I just love how much uh, Joey and Chandler love him too. <laughs> I was able to hang out with him and you know that that fun dad character. He was a basketball game. <laughs> and again, that was those guys loved having him there, mm-hmm. and we watched, we saw that, and so we wrote to it, like because we saw between takes they were, you know, they were asking him for Magnum PI stories, and they were just, you know, in awe of him because that was something he could do something they couldn't do. You know, mm-hmm. actors always talk about, you know, you can't play King Lear to your certain age. You can't, doesn't matter how talented you are. Um, so that guy could come into our show and play and have the gravitas and play the patriarch and play a guy who was, who was a man when these people were children, simply because of his, because of his acting skill, but also because of his age, because mm-hmm. um, of his experience. And so that was fascinating, I think, to all of us, how that just, change the dynamic. And also he's an icon. So everybody wanted to talk to him. Um, but we, we would watch that stuff between takes the, I'm just going to jump back to early in the show. Um, for another example of that, I remember like early on, we were having trouble nailing who Monica was. Mm -hmm. And after it was somewhere in the first season, it was somewhere around episode six, seven, eight, we went down to run through and after run through, I was hanging out with maybe Jeff Astroff um, and Mike Sykowitz. And I, I think we were talking to Matt LeBlanc about a joke or we, maybe we were just chatting or whatever. Um, and before we walked back to the office and we saw Courtney come onto the stage, the set, the empty set and straighten the furniture in her imaginary <laughs> apartment. No way. I swear to God. And we were like, what's happening? And she like arranged it and she was like, okay. And she didn't realize we were looking because, you know, stages are really, really big and they're dark when the lights are off. There wasn't, there were only work lights on. So she didn't really notice us at first. So she got it right, right. And she was like, okay. And then she like, but no one saw her do it. She wasn't rehearsing a scene. She just didn't like the way it looked. She was just straightening the furniture. And we ran back to the room and we were like, we just saw Courtney straightening the furniture on her apartment, like in her imaginary apartment. Like that's her. Oh like, yes. Cause then everyone went, wait a minute. Did you, 
because people were just starting to get car phones then, not full cellular. Mm -hmm. I don't know why you could only have your phone in a car, but <laughs> everybody went to Courtney and Courtney would tell them what phone to get and what plan to get. And we were like, wait a minute, she tells, she's kind of the mother hen to everyone. Oh, and then we just took it. And it worked so well, because that's who she truly was. She kind of took care of everyone and she was, uh, she was a bit of a control freak and she did like things just mm -hmm. so. Um, and so we wrote to that and she, you know, obviously she ran with it and it was awesome. It kind of defined who she was. Oh my gosh. That's so awesome. We didn't know that. We didn't have any idea yeah. that was the, really the case. That's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. That's you know fantastic. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is one of my favorite. That is one of my favorite stories. Yeah. And I can see her doing it too, right? Yes. Imagine her, you know, the yeah. whole stage is dark. She doesn't think anyone's there. And she's just not even consciously doing it, right? She's just doing it. No, it's absolutely not conscious. She just walked by. She didn't like the way it looked. And she was like, mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we're in season three we're, with our podcast. And we just had Ross and Rachel break up. We were on a break. And that has been the running gag, iconic line who thought mm -hmm. of that line or like how did it come about was another one of those collaborated processes okay let's say this let's say that in the room yeah because who originally said it i think david crane originally said it but the the way it became the kind of um you know his sort of mantra was because we were equally divided in the room over whether what he did was cheating or not. And I don't remember what side I was on. And I think frankly, we all switched sides because we would, and again, this is Martin David would let us stand there and argue about it because they really wanted each character to have a leg to stand on. They didn't want him to be the jerk and they didn't want her to be the jerk. They wanted like, I, they they wanted each side to have a compelling argument. And we, again, were yelling at each other at the room, oh. like, he totally cheated. Like, it wasn't a full breakup. She said she wanted a break. That's the same thing as a pause. A pause is not an ending. And then other people are like, they're on a break. They, they are no longer seeing each other. He didn't initiate it with the girl. The girl initiated it with him. He was drunk. She said that she didn't want to see him. That, But that's not the same as breaking up. And like... And we would do that for hours and hours. And that's why I think that's why not only was it funny, but it's why it worked. Because each person, when they're telling their side, you're like, well, no, that's true. And then you hear his side and you're like, well, no, that is true as well. And it came, that was a great, that was really a room thing. Because there were so many jokes and so much dialogue about that stuff that came directly from us yelling at each other. And we would yell at each other in character all the time because oh like, you would pitch it you would pitch in character and you would you would always pitch in character that's like that's what being in a room is and we were so in sync with them that like you could pitch a chandler line and we would pitch it you know with the emphasis on the you know the unexpected word that thing that he used to do Mm -hmm. And we would always, we would actually know which word he would hit, which was crazy because he always did a different word, uh -huh. but we would say the lines and they would say them essentially the same way. We were so in sync with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, but for sure, we're, we're sure we're on a break. Sorry, what? Whose side are you on? I ultimately, <laughs> I'm on Ross's side. 
because to me, we're on a break means I don't want to see you anymore. And for right now, this relationship is not happening. So even though it's not a permanent breakup yet, to me, it's a pause, which means we're not being together, which means it's okay to do what he did. But again, that's why, that's why we made it that he was not the, um, that he didn't instigate it with the woman. We made sure he was tipsy, he was really upset, and mm-hmm. she really pushed it. So we, yeah. we tried to make it be a hard, we tried to make it an argument that wasn't easily winnable on each side, right. on either side, but I'm, I'm with Ross. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's awesome. Is there one of the, the six main characters that you have a particular affinity to or is really just more special to you than the, the others? And it's like picking love, up a child, but... It, it really is because I, I love them all so much and I can think of so many moments that either I was a part of or wrote myself that I just, I'm so proud of. But I think if I had to had to pick, I might say Joey only because... He is the kind of friend I want the most. He is the, he'll throw himself in front of a moving train for you. Just the sort of when we discovered like that his defining trait is loyalty. Um, And we based a lot of the early uh, Joey stuff on a really close friend of mine, Tony Testa, who we moved out here uh, with from New Jersey and he's a, a production guy out here in, in Los Angeles, but Tony's this big Italian guy. He learned how to cook way before any of us did. Oh. He would, you know, he would cook lots of sauce when he was in a bad mood, just like Joey oh, did. did yeah. He used to say he would cook and say, how's that working out for you? Um, <laughs> and um, uh, we took so many Tony isms and, and that's really who Tony has been for me. And also for Ira who grew up with Tony mm-hmm. and actually Andrew Reich who grew up with Tony too, who wrote on the show later. We just took a lot of this guy's voice, but we loved the idea that this guy's defining characteristic was loyalty. Um, and also the, the fun, the joy of the smart dumb joke that you could mm-hmm. only do with him, sometimes Phoebe, but um, whether it's a moo point or, oh. you know, he had so many, so many moments that they were just so delicious. And he's such a technician that he would get like three laughs out of one joke. And one time yeah. I asked him how he did it. And he said, it's kind of like surfing. And he talked about how riding an audience laugh is like surfing. And I was like, wow, you really think about it on a level that I didn't even realize. And we've been working together for four years. Um, So if I had to, had to, had to pick, I think I'd pick Joey because of the loyalty. Wow. And you mentioned how the writers uh, pitched in, you know, how you wanted the actors to say the words. But what about when Chandler says, could I be anymore? Could we be like, where did that come from? That was 100 percent him. Um, and the first time we saw it, we're like, what is he doing? And then literally by the end of the run through, we were all like, that's genius. Oh. He totally made it his own. Cause he was always like the hyper loquacious, like super, um, super witty guy. And he got so many jokes in, uh, Matthew Perry pitched so many, they all pitched jokes that got in the scripts mm-hmm. and ideas that got in the scripts. But Matthew Perry, if I had to pick one person who got probably got the most jokes in, it would have been him. Um, 
But he found that early on. And then what I was saying earlier, which was crazy, is that we were so in sync with those guys when we would pitch in the room and we would pitch in his voice. And we would start to pitch in in that way where we would emphasize, you know, could I be anymore? Um, and we would always hit the same word that he would hit, even when it wasn't obvious, like, could I be wearing any more clothes? Which, by the way, yeah. is another thing that came from real life. Yes. <laughs> really? Did you put on all your roommate's clothes? Uh, no, Greg Malins, who came <laughs> in season two, uh, lived with a guy named Brian Boyle, who was a, ended up being a writer's assistant and then a writer on the show in season five or six. And he told us this hilarious story about when he and Brian first moved to Los Angeles and they had a mutual friend named Sebastian who came for a visit and then who ultimately moved here and also became a writer. But Sebastian went out and for no reason at all, so dramatically unsatisfying, but we stole it. Um, he, for no reason at all, Brian decided it'd be funny to put on all of Sebastian's clothes. So he took out all of Sebastian's clothes from a full suitcase for like a 10 day trip and put them all on. Um, and we were like, we, we have to, we have to use that. Um, and we kept talking about it. We didn't know where, what's the right, we need to like, cause you would stop the person. So it has to be a time where the other guy isn't around or he's stuck somewhere and when's that ever going to be. And then Greg and I got into an argument about who I always sat in the same seat around the writer's room table oh. and we would go and we would work till from like 10 in the morning till like one, we'd eat lunch and then we'd go to the run through and then come back and do a rewrite off of the run through. And when we come back, Greg started sitting in my chair and I was like, dude, that's my chair. And he's like, no, it's not. He left. And I was like, yeah, but I was sitting there before. So that doesn't that kind of establish that it's my chair and I sit there every day. And he's like, I don't think so. And I was like, what if I just went to the bathroom? And he said, that's different. If you just go to the bathroom, I know you're coming back. Like it's still, that's still the same session in which like <laughs> he got into this long, like months long argument. And he only did that because he knew it drove me insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when we came up with the idea for the real time episode, which Ira wrote, which is one of my favorites, the one where no mm -hmm. one's ready, mm -hmm. um, we needed these little tiny stories. And I think Greg pitched, let's pitch that let's do that ridiculous thing that Adam always gets upset about. And I was like, mm, nice try. Totally justified. Um, you took my chair. And, oh my you know, uh, yeah. So we were constantly, constantly taking, there, there are so many examples of, of that. And I just thought of another one if you want one, but okay. I also see it's an yeah. hour. So you want, okay. So there was, this is just a joke, but I love it because it was a thing that happened at two o'clock in the morning and we literally put it in at two o'clock in the morning. So I don't remember what season this was. You might not be there yet because it's once, I think it's Ross and Rachel are together and Ross is complaining. I think he's complaining about something that Rachel made him do or an argument or something. And um, Chandler goes, oh man, wapa. Oh yeah, and <laughs> Michael Borkow, who was a writer on the show, who really talented, wrote on Malcolm in the Middle, Bernie Mac show, and a bunch of great shows, and and also Friends. Jokingly, one night when we had been working for fourteen hours, somebody got a call from their girlfriend or wife, and they're like, "Okay, I'll, I'll be right back." And jokingly, Michael Borkow goes, "Oh, wapa," meaning like, "Boy, you're you're really whipped." Whipped. Um, and we're like, "What? What was that sound, Michael?" And he said, you know, it's 
it's that old fashioned joke, oh, you know, it's the, the whipping sound. We're like, right. but that wasn't the whipping sound. He's like, yeah, it's a, it's a wapa. And then we said, no, the whipping sound is whoosh. And he said, that's what I did, wapa. <laughs> and we're like, okay, just just write this down right now. And we're putting this verbatim in the script. It was 2.30 in the morning. Oh my God. From 2.30 to 3 in the morning, we went back and found a place we could put that in the script. And uh, then the next day we got to see it on stage. And that was only because we were there till 2.30 in the morning. And oh because my Mike's workout didn't know how to make that sound and thought he was making the sound, which was the best part. <laughs> oh that my is God. the best part. Yeah. So that can we, I want to go back to one thing you just said about uh, LeBlanc talking about riding the audience as a wave and you know, fewer and fewer, particularly now, things are shot in front of a live audience. And how do you think that impacts the content that we're that it's being produced now and are we losing something by not doing so much in front of a live audience uh, you lose something and you gain something um you can have super nuanced performances w which are wonderful uh, but i also think you lose the truth that the an audience reveals if an audience doesn't laugh it's not funny if there is no audience you can have it be a smile and how do you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's more, it's more forgiving, but mm -hmm. you know, it can also lead to incredible shows that, you know, a half hour sitcom with an audience, we tried not to do it on friends, but there is a sort of a, a three jokes, a page thing where you end up with just instinctually, you kind of end up with three jokes, a page because you, you are playing to an audience, you have an audience there, mm -hmm. they're expecting a certain amount of big belly laughs. And you just, not that you go back and say, oh, on page seven, I don't have three big jokes, but you, you write it differently. And of course their performances change because they constantly have to pause. Mm -hmm. And they know that if, you know, if they push it a little more, they'll get a bigger laugh. And it's just like the difference between theater and film, because really what we do is a play. Uh -huh. um, when you do a single camera show, you might film, you know, a couple of pages in a 12 hour period. You know, we would shoot 25 pages, 30 pages in the same amount of time. So it's much faster and it's proscenium, right? So it's, um, you know, the, there's four cameras, they're filming live at the same time. It is the same setup as live theater. So, you know, when I grew up and I watched um, Good Times and Taxi and whatever, mm -hmm. I I loved that they were able to balance the emotion and the big laughs and, and they, mm -hmm. the studio audience only made it richer. So I do miss that. I wish there were more of them. Like I'm lucky enough to work on one now and mom mm -hmm. that still has mm -hmm. an audience. Although of course now during the pandemic, yeah. we don't, but up until this time we had an yeah. audience. Yeah. Um, I love the form. I think when it's done right, it, it can it can transcend itself and could be more like a play. It can be super funny, but if you do it right, it can also be surprisingly moving. And my favorite moments on Friends were, you know, the Thanksgiving episodes or the moments mm -hmm. that you know were just such a a gut punch um, uh, emotionally, and that we could we could be that funny and then that moving. Um, mm -hmm. To me, is like that's the bar, like that's the brass yeah. ring. So what is your so what was your proudest storyline that you have or proudest memory that you have with friends? Oh, that's so hard. Oh, um, I know. I'll try, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Okay. I think 
it's so hard because it's, you know, it's with six years of my life. Mm-hmm. We did three stories an episode. We would normally, you know, we throw out whole storylines and we did, you know, we would do 25 episodes a season sometimes. Yeah. So it's hard to pick one, but if I, I guess I'll cheat a little bit on your question and I'll say the whole Monica okay. Chandler arc, which I was a part, a real part of mm-hmm. coming up with, finding that and finding, um, unlocking that idea through the the idea that they were gonna keep their relationship secret and that it gave us half a season of stories. That was so exciting to be able to pivot at least for a couple of years from Ross and Rachel and to have it mm-hmm. work was so exciting. I, I think that's my proudest moment because it's like an example of what makes the show great that mm-hmm. Ross and Rachel are the emotional center and then Monica and Chandler are and then Joey is, and then Phoebe is, and you don't yeah. know from week yeah. to week who's going to carry the emotional story and who's going to just be in the full comedy story. Um, and that, to me, to me, that was the the show at its best. You didn't know where the emotion was going to come from. That's so awesome. I'm watching it again in order and and kind of more quickly than you would normally watch it. It's really fun to watch that and and to to see that evolution of the characters and. You're, Right, watching Joey grow and love him, just like you just love him. The whole, the, the whole thing with Little Women is one of my favorite things so far. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah. so sweet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and putting, unexpected. Yeah, and putting The Shining in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. So after six seasons, you decided to leave this uh, you know, dream job, I guess. What? May, you were just exa- I always said it, I, I, he was just exhausted from it because it was just so much. Were you the same way or what happened? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was the longest lasting original writer. I was fortunate enough, I and I, to be hired um, at, at, when it premiered or before it premiered. So we were there not for the pilot, but for episode one on. All the other original writers had left. And, you know, like I said, if we did... 75 stories a year because we always did an a story a b story and a c story in every episode and we were always throwing out stories and and rewriting i had i had literally come up with or been a part of hundreds thousands of stories and i did start to feel burned out and i wanted to try something new and i was still a kid i was like 29 or something when i left um but you know, of course, hindsight being 2020, you're like, wow, you know, if I had just stuck around for two more years, I would have gotten an Emmy. Because every year, every year, what happened is just a quick aside, we would get nominated for an Emmy every year, which is very exciting. And I will yeah. just say the obligatory, and it's an honor just to be nominated. But it really also would have been nice to win. But every year, what happened was we would go and Frazier would win. And what was really terrible about Frazier winning is it started with the same sound as our show. So they would say, and the winner is Fra, and we would all lean forward, and they would go Asia, and we would all go. "Mm." (laughs) Um, Yeah. So um, no, I mean, I was ready to move on because I was, I was, I, I, I had worked so hard for so long, and I was so proud of what we had done, Mm -hmm. and I felt like it was time to let other people kind of come to the forefront. 
um, and I wanted to try new stuff. And and I'm 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 glad that I did. Um, I, I wish I could have just popped back for season eight, so I I could have gotten that. <laughs> that's, my, yeah. that's my that's my only regret but it was a magical job it was magical yeah i'll tell you one just one quick thing do you have time yeah. for this yeah. okay so just one quick thing like that t- to me encapsulates what this show was or how big the experience was um i've never had a job before or since where when i told people what i did they flip out like they just <laughs> flip out like yes especially when, when the show was on, people would lose their minds. Um, and so when we did that show, uh, the two episodes in England, there had been one or two of these books that came out, like Behind the Scenes of Friends. And, you know, they had, we had gotten a free copy. I didn't really pay attention to it. And so we went to London. We had a really big budget. And we did stuff outside. And um, we had these big guest stars and stuff. And so we were outside and we had there were these huge crowds, like hundreds and hundreds of people would hear we were shooting and would show up and watch. And it was like, wow, this is crazy. And they were screaming the actor's name. And then people started screaming our names. And I remember turning to Matt LeBlanc and saying, is this a practical joke? Did you do this? Because they don't know my name, Matt. Like you did this, didn't you? And he's like, no, dude. And I realized, we realized that these kids, people, they weren't all kids, had these behind the scenes friends books and they they looked at the credits and they figured out who we were oh my god and they wanted our autographs oh it was crazy <laughs> then after that after we did the england shows i did something unlike myself actually i was thinking of the leather pants at this moment <laughs> at that moment and i i went um as i wanted to go somewhere i i would never have traveled before so i went to um iceland so I traveled to Iceland on my own, which is, you know, the land of fire and ice, this very exotic place, you know, and I went to this famous place called the Blue Lagoon, which is a geothermal pool, like a giant natural mm-hmm. hot tub that's the size of a small lake. And I'm floating yeah. in this geothermal pool because it has like minerals, that, something to keep you floating. And I hear, I hear these girls in the geothermal pool in Iceland, quoting friends. Oh my Iceland. gosh. Oh my um, gosh. And, and that's, you know, that just brought home again. Okay. I'm working on it. This is not normal. Yeah. And that was like, wow, that's the reach of the show. Wow. I mean, it's still to this day, the legacy of it. I mean, we, I, I, I coach a 12 and under volleyball team in seal beach and the girls there, some of their shows, their favorite shows, oh, Friends. And I'm like, but you're 10. You know, it's I know. <laughs> it blows great. my mind. It's so cool. It's so one cool. more question. Would you interject into those conversations, like the one that you heard in Blue Lagoon, and say, hey, well. Hey, I wrote that. <laughs> you know what I did? Uh, honestly, I lo- I thought, should I say? And then I was like, they're not going to believe me. It's going to seem like I'm <laughs> hitting on them or something. But they kept, they kept doing it. And I laughed. And they said, I think that man is laughing at us. And they're like, no, I'm not laughing at you. It's just, it, forget it. You wouldn't believe me. And they're like, what, what? And I said, well, I wrote that. And they're like, no, you didn't. Because they were singing Smelly Cat. And I was oh like, no, actually, I, I did. I, I really did. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was all, and they're like, mm-hmm. BS. And then they quizzed me, and they were such huge fans. Here's another crazy thing. They oh. quizzed me, like, who does, you know, who does the sets? Who does the props? 
Because not only did I need to answer that question, they knew the freaking answers to those oh questions. Oh my god! Wow! Because they oh watched the. God. It was crazy. Yeah. These fans so are that's real. What I was, what's that? These fans are real. Yes. They're, yeah. These they're fans die are hard. real. Yeah. Die hard. Die hard. Die hard. Yes. Die hard. It always comes back to die hard. I mean, you can't ask for more than that, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's no. amazing. That's an amazing experience, and you you know you've done something. Yeah, last and has a legacy for you know a long, a long time. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank I can't you wait for... for my. I can't wait for my girls to watch it. Uh, yes. They're four and six, so I'll let them grow up a little bit more. But my godchildren, when they were twelve, you know that was their favorite show, and I was like, I don't understand how is that possible? Because that was <laughs> yeah. like three years ago. Yeah. It was just so great, and I'm a big fan, and I want to say thank you so much for having, for creating a show that, and I was telling Ira this, it just, it makes me feel like home. I watch it every night before I go to bed, and I've been doing that the past, mm -hmm. like, 15 years, and it just, every time it puts a smile on my face, and it makes me laugh, and it's such just a genuine laugh, no matter what, and it just makes me in a better mood. Like, through my hard times, it has always made me in a better mood. So thank you so much for giving the gift oh, of friends. <laughs> you're, so, you're so welcome. I had so yeah. many people say that, like when they're in a bad mood or yes. they've gone through a breakup or had a hard day, they turn on an episode of Friends and it just kind of makes them feel better. And that's yes. like the greatest thing after yes. all these years. It's awesome. It's still, uh, it's thank still you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tuesday. Adam, for joining us. Yes, of course. You guys, you. Are, you guys are awesome. Thank you, yeah, uh, so thank you for inviting me. It's super fun. Yeah. We hope to have you again soon because I feel like you have a lot more to tell us I and we have a lot so more to learn. <laughs> oh my God, I have endless stories. So yeah, I would be happy to do it again sometime. Sure. All right, thank you. That's great. Thank you know, you, I'm Adam. not doing that much. I'm in a closet during the <laughs> pandemic. Is mom, mom back in production? Um, you guys yes, we are back in production, and here I am in in a closet where I where I do my work because it's the only place where I'm insulated enough sound wise that the four yeah. and, and six year old don't. Don't bleed too much into the microphone, but yeah, it's a whole new world. We watch everything on um, an app-based video system, so we're not on the lot at all. We watch table reads and run-throughs, wow. you know, on the computer, and then we communicate via Zoom. And so we've got like three screens going at once: script, actors, and um, and writers. That's amazing. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. Well, but what, it's working. what the world it's changed. Working. Yeah, what the world has changed to and what we can yeah. do with all this technology. That's Adaptation. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank Adaptation. you, Adam, for joining us uh, once again. Um, and if you guys like our podcast, subscribe, download, give us nice comments, and five star ratings. Yes, and follow us on Instagram, Friends with Friends Podcast. Thank See you. you. Thank you, Adam. <laughs>